Where in the hell have you been hiding this little girl? She's not just selling tuna, son. She's selling America. Hello, you're listening to Ad Cinema Club, where people who work in advertising watch movies about advertising. To see what Hollywood thinks is happening on Madison Avenue, I'm David Greiner. I am uh, one of the hosts, and I am this week's club president. What an honor. What an honor to be elected president this week. Uh, <laughs> alongside my fellow club members, uh, officers, and co-hosts, uh, Ashley Rudstein. Ashley, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, you know. I don't remember an election, actually, now that we talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> there was a coup. There was a coup after the first episode, and and uh, that's as much as I'm willing to acknowledge this uh, democratic process. Shannon Miller, uh, thank you for quietly electing me without Ashley's permission uh, to oversee this week's episode. Shannon, how you doing? I am really excited to join this benevolent dictatorship, and um, yeah, it's doing pretty well. <laughs> uh, like the original dictators uh, of Rome, uh, I will step down after uh, I have accomplished all that needs to be done, and uh, and and I will go live a quiet life of farming. We have a lot to talk about today. I worry it's going to be a long episode because I, I have so much to say about Mr. Mom, both about uh, the movie, about the background, about the advertising connections, um, and just what it has to say about it. Not just advertising, but about gender roles, about gender identity, about uh, America and consumerism, like this we're going to go some places uh, today. Uh, before we get into that, I want to give a quick plug for two things. Number one, we're, we're a new episode, as you can tell. This is number two, episode two. Uh, and uh, we could really use your help uh, if you're listening to this and you enjoy it. Uh, if you don't enjoy it, you can just quietly move on with your life. We won't ever bug you again. Uh, but if you do enjoy it, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review uh, for a new podcast that is vital. There is literally nothing bigger you can do, uh, but a very close second. Uh, that does involve a little bit of money is to go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash ad cinema club and uh, throw us $3 a month. So that's one buck per host. Uh, won't, you know, that we're not asking too much. Uh, but what that does, all that does is offset the hard costs of running a podcast. Uh, if you've never started one, everything costs money, uh, the hosting and the equipment and uh, all of it. Uh, so uh, yeah, if you can head to the patreon.com slash ad cinema club, we would appreciate your support and uh, being one of our, our founding club members. You'll get access to a few bonus episodes each season. You'll get early access to each episode. And uh, I say this as a dictator because I haven't run this past YouTube, <laughs> but uh, we can let f- uh, the, the patrons uh, will get a role in helping us select what our future movies uh, could be. So you will get to influence the podcast uh, because I have a feeling folks are going to have a lot of suggestions on um, what we should be watching. But this week... This week we are watching an absolute classic, whether it deserves to be or not, 1983's Mr. Mom, starring Michael Keaton. Uh, and uh, I, I just want to pause there and see, had you two seen Mr. Mom before? I saw it once when I was way too young to understand what was going on beyond um, there's mm-hmm. a child cooking chili on the stove. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's been quite some time since we've seen it, and it is... Yeah, it is. I, I know I use the word aggressively a lot, but this is an aggressively 80s film. So and I was, that was the first thing that I was confronted with um, watching this. Yeah, but it, it had been quite a while. Yeah, my story is kind of the same. I definitely saw it when I was very, very young. It was one of those blockbuster rentals one random weeknight that I just barely remember. Um, 
So I, I vaguely remembered a little bit of it, but I felt like I was watching it for the first time. It was truly a treat. Uh, every, everything I remembered about this movie was specifically because I too watched it as a child. And all I remembered was the really anxiety inducing parts for children, which is the vacuum being terrifying, uh, and the washing machine being terrifying. Uh, I lived in fear of both of those appliances for no good reason, (laughs) except watching this movie. Um, and they weren't even as freaky as I remembered, but I remember them being like, like home alone level. Like when they go down to the basement, also written by the same person, John Hughes. Uh, but you know, when he goes down the basement and home alone and like the furnace is like coming to life and it's freaky and terrifying. That's kind of how I remember these, but I did not remember anything about the advertising connections, the, um, the, the constant sexual harassment, and just various <laughs> other things that, that we as adults uh, notice ab- about this film. So speaking of John Hughes, uh, who I think most people probably know from writing and directing movies like The Breakfast Club and uh, Pretty in Pink or whatever, you know, all these like uh, 80s teenage movies. This was his breakout movie, uh, kind of. So in 1983, when this movie came out, uh, John Hughes wrote two movies. He had only written one movie before, and it was just absolute dog shit. It was uh, National Lampoon's Class Reunion, which no human remembers. Um, It it bombed, but he got to write a second one, which was based on a vacation he took when he was a kid. uh, And that was National Lampoon's Vacation. Came out in 1983. Mega hit. Of course, big cultural touchpoint. Also, 1983, he wrote a screenplay called Mr. Mom, which was about uh, when he ended up having to take care of his two kids uh, by himself uh, without his wife around. He was telling a female friend about it. She was like, that's hilarious. He said, do you think it would make a good movie? And she was like, yeah. And so he wrote it as Mr. Mom uh, and it got and it got produced. So talk about two bangers in one year, right? Like for a for a basically a brand new screenwriter to knock out vacation and Mr. Mom. So he becomes huge uh, right away, as does Michael Keaton. So Michael Keaton had had one kind of breakout role in Night Shift, which was a Ron Howard movie uh, that came out in 82. Hollywood moved so fast back then. It's like Michael Keaton's in this and right away they're like, what else can we put this guy in? Oh, okay. And he basically had two options. He could be in Splash (laughs) or he could be in Mr. Mom. And he turned down Splash to be in Mr. Mom. Ron Howard was asked to direct Mr. Mom uh, which, by the way, it would have been so much better if Ron Howard had directed it. Uh, but like he said no to direct Splash. So kind of a funny little like two-way street. Turns out both movies made $60 million They on very small budgets. They both did great. So it was a coin toss. Uh, but Michael Keaton ends up blowing up because of this movie. Uh, John Hughes ends up blowing up because of this movie. I would say the only person who didn't kind of blow up because of this movie is the director. Do either of you – did you notice who the director was? No. Nope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it ended up being directed by Stan Dragati. So not a household name, but you've probably seen one or two of his other movies. He made uh, The Man with One Red Shoe with Tom Hanks. Uh, it's not great. Um, and then he made uh, one of my all-time favorites. Shannon, you and I have never talked about this movie, but I, I want to live in a reality where you also love this movie. The early 90s classic Necessary Roughness. Okay, no, but all of a sudden, a lot of things <laughs> fell into place for me. <laughs> like, ah, got it. About me or about Mr. Mom? <laughs> a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. 
<laughs> yeah, there is definitely um, totally. It's like ah, okay, yeah, that that makes a, a ton of sense. The 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 directing in Mr. Bomb is weird. Like I don't know how to describe it. It's awkward. <laughs> And it feels very like stage play. Like it feels like everyone is facing the camera. Like there's mm-hmm. a studio audience there. It's like, I can't really describe it except that it's, it's like whenever there's a dialogue, everyone stands like shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> to, like, talk to the, to the camera. My, Michael Keaton's constantly doing this thing where he's got his hands on his hips and he's looking away and like talking to us. And I'm just like, did they, was this supposed to be like a sitcom filmed in front of a studio audience? Like, anyway, Dragati's got like a pretty funky, uh, but after Necessary Roughness, which I unironically love, it is a dumb movie. It's super dumb. Uh, starring Sinbad and Scott Bakula and Kathy Ireland. How could it not be a classic? But I unironically love it. I think it's one of the great comedies of the early 90s. Uh, he never made another movie. He was married to Cheryl Teague. Maybe that was enough for him. I don't know. But anyway, it's Dan Dragati. Given his flowers, passed away a few years ago, but uh, not forgotten. Uh, but what I really wanted to talk about uh, is John Hughes. Did y'all know before watching this? Do you even know now that John Hughes began in advertising? No, I did not. That is news to me, actually. Yeah, copywriter, copywriter John Hughes. Huh. Uh, I don't think he liked it, which, which maybe comes across <laughs> in this. I film. was going to say, like, <laughs> it's very clear that he made an, an exit. A hasty exit from that career, and I don't know if he talked too fondly of it. It's just ninety people smoking, and then you quit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna have fun. Just I I went down a rabbit hole, as you could tell from everything I'm about to uh, tell you about him. So he started his career at Needham Harper and Steers in 1970. Ashley, quiz time. What is Needham Harper and Steers now? I have no idea. I've never heard that. It is DDB. Oh, my gosh. Uh, of course. So it became DDB Needham, and then now it is DDB, DDB Worldwide. So it became one of the wow. biggest uh, global networks. Um, he started there. He went to because he was in Chicago. All roads lead to Leo Burnett. So he ended up at Leo Burnett. Hmm. Um, he did make one ad campaign uh, that is still like not even attached to John Hughes. People will be like, oh, I remember this from my childhood. It was before my time, uh, but it was for Edge shaving gel. Like when that idea of shaving gel was still brand new and everyone was using foam, he came up with this concept where they show someone getting a credit card scraped across his face, like up his cheeks. So it's like, (laughs) and then they're like, we shaved one side of his face with foam and the other side with gel. Uh, And I actually have it. So let's, Let's give it a listen. Now, listen to the foam side. Then listen to the edge side. Foam, edge. Edge lets you shave closer than the leading foam. So, yeah, so the dude, dude made some legit ads that people still think about. Um, and uh, But he was working on Lucky Strike. No, Virginia Slims. He was working on Virginia Slims because, uh, you know. He's a copywriter in 1970s, uh, so he's working on uh, cigarette accounts. And when he goes to the Philip Morris headquarters, he's like bumping into or probably went out of his way to bump into uh, the National Lampoon office because it's in the same building. So he starts chumming it up with them, getting to know the editor, who's PJ O'Rourke, famed editor. And uh, so they start talking. He's like, hey, can I write for you guys? And he starts writing some things soon. His whole career transitions because they also have him writing screenplays. So that's how he ends up transitioning to being the John Hughes we all know and loved. Um, He 
advertising, I think, comes up in a few of his movies, uh, namely Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which it's probably just a matter of time before we watch that, maybe a seasonal selection. Uh, but this is, I, I think, far and away, this is his most um, ad-centric uh, movie. Uh, so thank you for letting me uh, ramble about John Hughes and about his advertising background. But I don't think we're going to get a whole lot of movies that were written by actual ad people. I was actually kind of surprised our last one, uh, All's Fair in Love and Advertising. I was kind of surprised that guy had worked in advertising because it really went kind of deep into how agencies work. And this one doesn't really, but, you know, it's got, it's got a, a few things. I, I think before we get into it, in into the plot, how big of a role do you think advertising actually plays in this movie? Shannon, you start. Um, It played a bigger role than I was anticipating, honestly, Um, just because the fact that that portion of the film is led by a woman, you would kind of think that that would be relegated to the background. Like we would see her maybe like pop in and out of the home with like storyboards, but like in terms of like the culture of advertising, not a big role. Um, but in terms of like its placement, especially for a film in the eighties, it, it played way bigger of a role than I expected, especially going deep into just like her, how she navigates that world or how she's enabled to navigate that world. I was actually really surprised, um, that it went, I mean, obviously, um, eighties rarely passed up a moment for some, you know, fun sexual harassment. So that's not surprising that that would make its way into the film. But there are also a lot of aspects that we'll get into a little bit later that I was really surprised it dug into. So, yeah, it's like the culture, no, not a big role. But just the presence, the overall presence in the film, I was actually pleasantly surprised about how much we got to see. Yeah, same. I I honestly thought it was going to be such a small portion of it. And I was surprised to see any ads at all. I wouldn't really call them like super creative ads. And I'm sure we'll get into that. (laughs) But I wasn't expecting to see any of that. I thought it would just be kind of like office culture and her working late nights. And that's kind of it. So I was surprised to see the rest of it. Uh, Also, if if there wasn't a character in a Halloween scene dressed up as E.T., I would have thought (laughs) this movie came before E.T. Because E.T. is like this watershed moment for brand placement, right? With Reese's Pieces. Mm -hmm. And so the the product placement world, there are two eras, right? They're pre-E.T., I was going to say B-E-T. <laughs> Pre-E-T and and post-E-T. And like I said, there's someone wearing an E-T mask. So obviously like they're, they're referencing it. But the product placement in this movie is kind of funky. Like Jack Daniels gets a very clear mm-hmm. label forward presentation in a not tremendously positive context. And yet the KFC reference, like when they all sit down to eat KFC, do you remember what they call it? No. No. I was convinced y'all would notice this. Uh, they call it Colonel Chicken. Oh my gosh! <laughs> say that they say we're going to eat Colonel Chicken. That we're going to eat. We're going to have Colonel Chicken, and then and then they don't show the bucket. They don't do, and then they uh, and one of the kids goes, "We can't afford that." <laughs> I'm like, mm. so I wondered it. I felt like they left that that placeholder in there in case they could convince KFC to likes to come on as because they show Jack Daniels, they show Levi's mm-hmm. in the background mm-hmm. uh, in the ad agency. And then, and then of course the core brands that we really deal with in the advertising side of the movie are fictional, but uh, it's, it, yeah, we'll get into that in, in just a second. So let me uh, first, I'll say like this. I, I thought I remembered this movie being kind of 
beloved. And I think it is in terms that people who watched it, white suburban people specifically, probably really liked it. Critics did not love it. Critics basically gave it like a two stars, two out of five kind of a level review. And their criticism was largely, we've heard all this before. We've seen all this before. So what's interesting is that like Mr. Mom has always talked about as this cultural moment of, hey, men are starting to stay at home too. And it's not just about women. And, and you know, uh, but I thought that was interesting that in the moment, critics were like, there's been a million movies and sitcoms like this. This, this idea of the gender role reversal is age old. That said, as someone who grew up in the 80s, I feel like this is one of the few movies and it's one that everyone referenced. Like to this day, if you're a guy who stays at home with the kids, people will will call you Mr. Mom or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like it's still referenced. Mm-hmm. So I feel like regardless of whether – is it a good movie? No, not especially. But like it did have this cultural resonance that I think we'll talk about near the end of the show about just what do we think this movie really had to say about gender and about society – I think it tries to go places and then abruptly decides <laughs> it doesn't know where it's going and just kind of gives up and and does like a dun 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 yep. dun and then credits <laughs> roll like it's it, yeah it it starts to go places so I, I think the I think the scenario got a lot of people's attention even if like it doesn't pay off in any really meaningful way mm. I'll just kind of talk through the basic structure of the plot because this is one of those movies where we could spend four hours talking about all the little details of of him bumbling through his life as a stay-at-home dad and we will talk about some of that because everyone has their little moments that stick out to them but in the end this is a very simple film <laughs> there's, there's not yeah. a whole lot to it Jack Butler played by Michael Keaton loses his job as an uh, auto engineer in Detroit uh, his wife, Carolyn, played by Terry Gar, quickly lands. They they have a little bet of who can get a job sooner. Uh, it's her because uh, she worked for two years. I think she said in advertising. She had a degree in advertising. So she gets a job in an ad agency. Hijinks ensue as he tries to figure out how to be, uh, you know, stay at home dad. Uh, thankfully, you don't really see hijinks ensuing for her. Like she's not bumbling through work. She's not happy. That's about as much as we really see. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets frustrated. She gets harassed. Um, she doesn't have a tremendously positive experience, if a positive experience at all, uh, in advertising. And then, I, you know, everything resolves. There's some wacky 80s, like misunderstandings, like very sitcom-y, like, <laughs> are you with someone else right now? Um, and then I think the resolution is supposed to be that they're all reminded of the importance of taking pride in what you do. And your family like there's this kind of and there's even this throwaway comment which you hear in every 80s movie it's this kind of a bit of a reagan era thing of like i know it's not popular anymore to say you know that you want to be proud of your work like that's a it's in every 80s movie this idea of like i know that we don't take pride in what we build or what we make anymore because america was in this like ah we're struggling we don't know what to do but anyway i it kind of goes in that direction of like be proud of yourself be proud of your of being a stay-at-home parent but then that kind of unspools she's not really proud of what she's doing she's not really upset about it either the movie just kind of ends (laughs) they just just run out i feel like there was some talk about like balance too because the way it ended up was like we'll both work and we'll both be at home sometimes and so i feel like there was some some sort of moral about work-life balance <laughs> yeah like there's this message of work-life balance but nothing about like enjoyment because at the end neither of them are especially psyched to go back to their respective 
areas. Like both of them had to deal with heaps of bullshit. And like in the end, it would have made far more sense to be like, we are going to look for something far less toxic for for both of us. (laughs) And in the end, they both were like, well, (laughs) this job invited my friends back and this job is going to give me a little bit more. So I guess we'll just kind of go back to what we were doing. Yeah, it was a very um, curious wrap up like embedded in about like three different slapstick things because there's this moment or the, these moments where basically all of the neighborhoods like trade favorites like the plumber and the gardener and the person have to show up at the house at once yeah it, it was an interesting it, it i don't see how that um takeaway would fare today where we prioritize or at least the ostensibly we prioritize happiness and balance and and you know res- feeling respected where we work um yeah it was it was interesting it was very very interesting yeah it, i feel like if this movie were made today or even just a better way to write it in the when it came out it's just like there's no real compromise at the end there's no real like realization like he becomes pretty good at being a stay-at-home dad and then at the very first opportunity he lunges back to working full-time at the exact same shitty car company you know car plant where he worked before for the same awful boss played by jeffrey tambor who i love and is, <laughs> i mean i don't love him as a human being he it turns out he's terrible but i do enjoy how jeffrey tambor was always in, in the 80s and all the way up to um, Arrested Development, was always willing to just be a terrible person. And maybe because it turns out he is one. Um, But like, (laughs) yeah. So like he, you know, he just goes back to like the working for the exact same company full time, not going to be with his kids anymore. Um, And Terry Garr's character, uh, Carolyn, ends up saying like, well, I miss my family. And I don't like my job. And they're like, well, what if you work three days a week? And stay at home two days a week. And then she's like, cool. And I'm like, what the hell? This is a movie about like the like the the supposed like joys and whatever of staying home with your family. And in the end, like no one wants to stay home. In the end, you're like, wait, who is watching these kids? Like, I guess they're going to go to daycare. It's like, like you would think it would come away. I, again, I think if it were made now, the, the result would be that they both want to be at home with the kids, right? That they both want to be a part of this moment. You're never going to have these childhoods again. Um but instead, they both like like knock each other down, sprinting out the door to work. Like, it, yeah, exactly. It's just literally like peace uh, and see you, kids. Uh, that's the rough plot. I just wanted to kind of get that out of the way so that we could we didn't feel like we had to be like, you know, slowly building up to the big <laughs> denouement of which there there is a slapsticky denouement, but like it's it's dumb. Um, what I really want to talk about, of course, is advertising, <laughs> and so um, I want to know. Uh, w- First off, this isn't really advertising, but I love a good layoff scene. Uh, having having being one of many people who has lost their job in the past and seen how it's handled in real life. What did you to think of the the way that Jack loses his job at the auto plant? Ash, you want you want to start us? I mean, did your layoff include choking your boss? Because I felt like that was that was a pretty accurate representation. <laughs> yeah, like, and I love that. The, so, so he is. Because uh, we didn't really mention this, that he is laid off with like two of his best friends by the fourth member of their carpool, which is super awkward. Um, and like so they all get laid off. And Christopher Lloyd, who we never see again, 
Like it's Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> and like he immediately is trying to murder the boss. <laughs> And and then briefly tries to kill himself, and then when that doesn't work, goes back to the attempted murder, <laughs> like Christopher. Lloyd. And then we never see him again. It's just like awesome cameo by Christopher Lloyd. Uh, I also love to backtrack like a minute in the movie. We see Michael Keaton's character trying to give this motivational talk to a few of the line workers, and it, that scene maybe my favorite scene in the entire movie because he is just like showing his complete ass to, like to to us to them to everyone because he's like guys the other day i was watching rocky and they're like which one and he's like what <laughs> and, and and they're like well well who was he fighting did the, and he's like i don't know he's like did he have a mohawk like was it mr <laughs> t and like it's like he's trying to talk to his kids about pokemon or something like he's trying to relate to them on some level and they're just like what what well which one yeah i mean what happened and then he's trying to turn like you guys just need to be resilient you know hang tough and then he's like just like rocky and the guys are like i don't think he's ever seen rocky you know rocky loses at the end of the movie so like I just love and these three line workers, the only people of color in the entire film right. are just like yep. this guy is so dumb. <laughs> so it's like like all John Hughes movies, black people only exist in the uh in the service industry or whatever. In this case, like this is literally the only time we see them. Um but at the very least, I do love that they're all just like, Oh my god, you're you're an idiot. And then he and then like as they call his name to the office, he's like, gotta go talk to the boss. And they're like, Yeah, he's totally getting fired. <laughs> And he's never seen rock. <laughs> uh, Shannon, what did you think of the, uh, the layoff scene? Uh, I mean, I felt like it existed solely to have Christopher Lloyd do physical comedy. And I was appreciative <laughs> of that because I was like, we're not going to see him again. Like, give him a moment to <laughs> yeah. choke a Get bitch. his ass, Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> if, if anyone deserves to choke a bitch out, it is Christopher Lloyd. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'm all for this. Now, would I prefer that no one be laid off in front of an audience? Maybe. I feel like that's an HR concern. But um, yeah, it was definitely, it definitely set a tone for the rest of the film because like you understand like, oh, we're about to deal with some like three Stooges level um, fuckery throughout this entire film. And so like if it exists for nothing else, it just allows you that moment to brace yourself um, if you, because I'm sure John Hughes was like, in 2023, three ad, <laughs> three ad professionals are going to watch this and they're going to have to really deal with, um, a lot of slapstick. So let's give them this moment to mentally prepare themselves. So I, I, for that yeah. and that alone, I'm like, okay, I understand why this exists. Um, outside of that, I knew that it was, it, it was obviously indicative of the time. This was, this film was like from 1983 so there was a recession there was a like a recession between 1982 and 1983 um that obviously was so sweeping that not even white men were safe so in in that uh realm it's like oh it's definitely a marker of its time um but yeah it was definitely a, a moment where christopher lloyd could choke someone and um, and Jeffrey Tamer could just sort of commit to the bit that he's been um, committing to for like decades, which is that like, if anyone's going to play like an awful slimy boss and, and pull it off, it, it would be him. I, I love that this movie uses the very classic eighties thing of like, we're going to punch everybody. 
like if someone does anything wrong, they get punched in the in the face. And like <laughs> I, I I literally grew up just thinking this was a normal reaction to relatively minor infractions. <laughs> <laughs> like in Die Hard, which I can't remember if that's like 89 or 90, but like in Die Hard, when John McClane's wife doesn't like the reporter that's like interviewing her, she just punches him. Yeah. And, and the crowd's like, hell yeah, get it. That guy's a shitbag. And he is. But like, it's funny that it's just like she just doesn't like him. And so she punches him and it's like and it's a it's like a hell yeah scene. And so like. This scene has several of those, uh, several people getting punched and not necessarily. Well, OK, yeah, like the sexual harasser does eventually get punched. Mm-hmm. But like Jeffrey Tambor just gets like knocked out, like straight up knocked out for like telling a kid to to be quiet. And he's like, oh, I told you never to talk to my kids again. Boom. And no one is just like, dude, that's a, that's a bit extreme. <laughs> it's, you know, he was warned. And it was literally like, I will punch you in the face. <laughs> But what we really want to talk about is the advertising. I just wanted to cover that because like 80s layoffs, recession, the way it's treated in this movie is is a bit of a hand wave. It's just like things are bad anyway, moving on. Like because at the time you could own a multi-story house with, you know, a junior copywriter income. And it's not something that really stresses people out. Uh, but like, what we really need to talk about, of course, is the ad agency. Uh, Ash, I know you always pay attention to fictional ad agency <laughs> I do. names. Do you? Did you notice what this one was called? I did. It was Richardson Frankel Advertising. But we only see Richardson. Frankel, I don't think, ever makes any sort of cameo. Yeah, and it's and it becomes pretty clear. I've got a soundbite for this, uh, that this is second generation agency ownership. Uh, so let's uh, let's hear a little. Oh, and agency owner. Did y'all recognize uh, the, the CEO of the agency, the actor? I have seen him before, but or- I couldn't figure out from where. Oh, yeah. For Child of the 80s, like, mm-hmm. this guy was in everything. It's Martin Mull. Martin Mull was in, like, every comedy. And he's just one of those. He was him and Eugene Levy, like, in everything back then, together. Always always the two of them. Um, and uh, so he, we get a nice introduction where he explains um, not just that he is the son of the founder, um, but also that uh, this is – that they're working on Schooner Tuna. That's going to be the only client we really see throughout this movie. Uh, and that this is an anchor anchor uh, client of their business. So let's uh, let's listen to what he has to say about Schooner Tuna. My father founded this agency on Schooner Tuna. It's the cornerstone of all our accounts. So my position is. Somebody better figure out a way to sell some tuna fish pretty damn quick. I, as someone, I worked for a second generation agency founder, like, so that I I thought this was kind of like hyper relevant to me. I like, I worked for the son of an agency founder whose name was on the door. Um, and like, I don't think he's presented. We, we of course very quickly find out that he is a problematic son of a bitch, but (laughs) like, um, at first he's presented. Okay. Um, Ash, can you describe, because it's such a great image. It's maybe one of my favorite things in the movie the the conference room where i guess concepting is going on uh that that when we first basically get exposed to what this agency is like well first of all the entire scene is just cloaked in smoke 
There's just this so haze <laughs> over everyone. So much cigarette smoke in that room. But there's probably 10 people in there, I'm assuming creatives, just throwing things at each other, screaming at each other. There's storyboards and sketches all <laughs> over the walls. And they just can't figure anything out, clearly. They're all talking over each other, smoking in the meantime. It's just pure chaos the second she walks up. I love that. Like people will literally say their lines while exhaling smoke, the commitment to smoking. Like John Hughes must have been like traumatized by the amount of smoking in his agency because it is like, you're not kidding this entire scene. It's like they're in a goldfish bowl of smoke and, and just everyone, you know, you never see Terry Gar's character smoking. Uh, it's not presented as a positive. That's for sure. Everyone's just like bitter and desperate. They haven't slept in days they're talking about. Um, Shannon, I guess, like, how do you feel about just based on the way the agency is presented? We don't get a whole lot of agency scenes, right? It's really just this one. Like, she gets a brief tour from a weirdly bitter uh, receptionist who, like, is obviously threatened by the idea of another woman. But there's another woman in the room, which was kind of a Mm -hmm. surprise. I really thought it was going to be like, oh, she's the first woman here because it's 1983. There's a woman in there smoking away you know, just as bitter and, and miserable as everyone else in the room um, and, and making fun of uh, this naive character. But like, how'd you feel about the portrayal uh, of what he's trying to say with this, with this agency of this conference room? It, it was interesting because you, you immediately notice the other woman. If you are a woman watching this film, because again, you expect her to be in a room full of men, but it's really apt that there's another woman that's there kind of camouflaged in like all of the smoke and yelling and just general terrible, terrible behavior. Um, because like, yeah, the, the receptionist comes in, she's, you know, showing her around immediate disdain, like almost exclusively, um, you know, hating on this woman. So there's like this crabs in a barrel mentality that is happening where it's like Carolyn is a, an immediate threat even though like even down to her wardrobe, she's positioned as sort of like this breath of fresh air, right? She's wearing like this canary blue, um, like, you know, flouncy pantsuit. And this entire scene is like brown and drab and and gray. And she's supposed to be like this breath of fresh air and sort of bring in this perspective that apparently no one's thought of because no one in this entire room full of like, full grown ass adults, no one's parents, no one's affected by this economy. She's the one, she's the sole voice. And I think this comes like later um, to talk about like, you need to sort of relate to your consumers um, in this moment, which is hilarious. Like they've got like all of these pictures, they're just like random. Like they're storyboarding, I guess, print. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, It's very unclear. There's no real direction in terms of like who anyone's role is. Or what it is that they're storyboarding. Is it print? Is it for TV? Like, is it for radio? We don't know. But we know it's wrong. And we know that Caroline's the only one that knows that it's wrong. And so it, it was... Yeah, all, all the campaigns are called stuff like... Uh, it, it's it, it's like uh, tuna is yummy. <laughs> you know, it's like the yeah, most throwaway. Was... It's like they literally... <laughs> yum, yum, tuna bits was their, their winning headline. <laughs> yeah, 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 fish bits. <laughs> like, we don't know. Like, there's a drawing of a leg randomly. Like, it's just, we're just so unclear. And so we're just like, okay, so... This not only does this uh, agency have this big fish haha client um, <laughs> that apparently is worth millions and they, they can donate. They have to dedicate all of their resources to this one client. Um, they are also apparently 
wildly out of touch with the people that they are selling to and the client who they are servicing. So that was really interesting that she comes in and sort of brings in this levity um, and sort of like is there to kind of like direct them. Like I almost wanted a separate movie about Carolyn just turning turning around this like poorly slapped together agency that can't figure out a fucking print ad. And she just turns them around to really think about what their jobs are. Uh, yeah. It, it was really, it was really, really something, which is why you're like, John Hughes, <laughs> like, what do you mean you were from advertising? <laughs> I, mean, I think this is a theme. We're obviously only on our second episode, but I think we're going to hear more and more is that like, no one has a job, right? Like no one has mm-hmm. a specific job. Everyone is just an ad exec. And so it's a room full of ad execs and they all come up with ideas and it doesn't, there's no copywriters, there's no art directors. Like, um, so I think we're going to be seeing a lot of these of like that concepting is done as a group, which is not untrue. Um, but you know, certainly uh, Ash and I have both worked as, as copywriters, Shannon, you work for an agency. Like we all know that, uh, you know, you don't just cover a wall with things and then just sit around with the agency CEO in the room being like, well, I say that. Eh, it can happen. <laughs> like Sometimes. we're just end up in this desperate, like this, this all sucks yeah. kind of mode. <laughs> I yeah, like I mean, I will say this, like in terms of like the sort of like brain cloud or sort of that that you know mind hive and concepting. The thing that I did notice, and I don't know if this is true for other agencies, but um, like for your smaller, scrappier agencies, like your indie agencies. Sometimes, yeah, the CEO or founder is in the room and ideating right next to their creatives. So I thought that, which is why it's like, I know Martin Mull is going to turn into a piece of shit later, but it is very interesting that he's in the room there, not just like delegating, but like obviously handing off the floor to this day one person, uh, seemingly interested in what they think. Obviously that had, there were, you know, ulterior motives there, but the idea that everybody gets a say and even like the reception, <laughs> the receptionist is in the room for some reason. Um, that receptionist is everywhere. She's interesting. Like, she's on the plane with them later, like on the private yeah. jet. I'm just like that receptionist, she... is like all over it. Between that and her very staunch British accent, I was like, "Who is this woman? <laughs> she is. She's got her her ears on the ground. Every agency in a way has that, a British like, person. Even... So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. and, and like. I think it's accurate to say that like the way they end up treating her is like, she's, it's not that she's a threat so much as that she's his newest toy. Like she's his newest thing. Like that's kind of obviously what they're Mm. setting up is partly like, Oh, it's just his newest like thing. And sure enough, like 30 seconds later, he's harassing that like not in a subtle way. Like it's not, (laughs) it's literally like, you're a very attractive woman. Um, And Mm -hmm. extremely attractive is what he says. Yeah. And uh, and she just like probably the most accurate part of this is how she responds to these things, because like these dipshits are saying this stuff all the time. Um, but one thing I did want to point out in that conference room, just because it was like a nice little moment before you find out like how awful some of these people are. Um, she goes to start like tidying up the table because like she's the newest person in the room and it's it's a crap heap like there's just trash everywhere mcdonald's cups that i didn't mention yeah, that's one brand you actually see um but uh martin mull stops her and is like we have people to do that 
And I actually thought that was nice because in, in so many other movies, it's like like in uh, Stranger Things, you know, they're like, oh, you're the new employee. You got to clean up. You got to do all this. You're the girl who mm. works here. You got to do this. And at first I was like, oh, OK, maybe it's going to be surprisingly like no, no, because like five <laughs> seconds later, they're on a private jet, which is hilarious. But whatever. 80s were a different time. They're taking the the agency's private jet to the tuna factory um, <laughs> <laughs> and they're eating. So like it does crack me up that like when he goes to pick her up, uh, this scene's terrible, but it is, I guess, funny in the 80s way. Like Martin Mole comes to pick her up in a limo to like go to fly to this thing. And Mr. Mom, Jack, is like super threatened by this guy for no reason. It's not like he's handsome. It's not like she said anything about liking him or whatever. Um, he's immediately threatened. He's like threatening to this guy. He like walks in with a chainsaw running. He like um, just a bunch of just dumb, dumb where he's just like there is one funny line where he when they're leaving to get in the limo and he says, um, hey, if you if you need me, I'll either be at the gym or the gun club. <laughs> I was like. <laughs> I was like, okay, that one's, that one's actually pretty funny, but like, you know, she just kind of shrugs it off. Like, Oh, it's whatever. My husband's just being dumb. Uh, but then on this plane, Martin Mull drinking champagne, even though he just told her husband, like, I don't drink on the job. He's drinking champagne. He's eating steak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's just in front of God and everyone just telling this woman, you're super attractive. I'm sorry. What was it? Extremely, Extremely attractive. attractive. <laughs> Extremely attractive. And her response was, thank you. And my husband thanks you too. Which is like, <laughs> yeah. okay. But, you know, again, 80s. So Martin Mull is just like amping it up. She ends up having to fly uh, to LA. To Well, I'm jumping ahead because we got to talk about the pitch, right? We got <laughs> <laughs> when she solves the tuna problem. Um, and, uh, Ash, I felt like I felt like you were, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I felt like you might have appreciated that. Like her solution is not an easy, easily predictable 80s thing. It's what made mm-hmm. me think, I bet John Hughes actually worked in advertising because instead of it just being like, we came up with a great catchphrase or we came up with a great jingle, the answer is your prices are too high in this economy. Um and you need to just address that head on. You're an expensive brand in a in a down economy. I was like, oh, shit, that's an actually like mature advertising solution. And it's one that goes beyond the campaign. It's not just a line. Um, any other movie does hand waving on the advertising like this one. They actually like mm-hmm. have a pretty good confrontation. Ashwood, what would you think of like the, the way she pitches this idea? And do you well, want to tell us like what the pitch is? Yeah. So first of all, when she is going into the room, the other teams, I guess, are coming out and saying that it was just an awful meeting and that the client shot down every idea they had. So I thought it was a little weird that she like gets her own part of the meeting just by herself because she's, you know, good old ad exec. Um, But so she walks in the room and And her bosses have no idea what she's about to say. (laughs) Exactly. There's no planning, no nothing. Um, But yeah, so I, I did like that part of it because like you said, it was an actual thought it was an insight that I thought was interesting she was basically saying that this brand of tuna is the most expensive on the shelf so you could say it's like a luxury brand of tuna and when you're a luxury brand gimmicks and giveaways just kind of uh, devalue the brand to begin with so those aren't going to work they've been giving away free trips free Hawaiian lays just random stuff to try to sell tuna and none of it's working 
So she says, you need to bring your prices down to help people who just can't afford food right now. And that was just like this big light bulb moment for everyone. Yeah, we've got a, a soundbite here of her pitching this idea. And basically she starts off as Ash describes like, make not making fun of, but pointing out that they've been doing these promotions. Oh, you're giving away glasses. You, you like, like Burger King used to like, you're, you're giving away uh, Hawaiian vacations. What you really need to do is, is get real about the consumer. So here's, here's uh, how she pitches that. I hope to hell you're making a point. Well, I am making a point, Mr. Humphrey. The point is, schooner tuna is one of the three most expensive tunas on the market. Now, if we want to beat our competitors, the time for these gimmicks and giveaways is over with. Now, I don't mean to be disrespectful, Mr. Humphrey, but housewives need your help, not your gimmicks. Show them that you really care about their problems, and you'll win their loyalty. Now, this is what I propose. Schooner Tuna sympathizes with those hit so hard by this trying economy. To help you, we are reducing the price of our tuna by 50 cents a can. When this crisis is over, we'll go back to our regular prices. Until then, remember, we're all in this together. Signed, Howard Humphrey, President Schooner Tuna, the tuna with a heart. And so, yeah, they love it. Like, and, and I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of love it. It feels like weirdly relevant. We are in like not the greatest economy right now. I think this idea of an agency kind of forcing a, a, a brand to think about their price structure and uh, the economic realities of their, of their audience, instead of just being like, Oh, we need to, you know, to, to find this one point of differentiation or this perfect ad campaign. She tells the CEO, like, as you can tell from that clip, like he needs to be the one, he needs to be the voice. Uh, this was definitely a thing in the eighties. Like this was a little ahead of it. Lee Iacocca for Chrysler kind of made it the thing that the CEO is the, is the voice of the agency uh, of the brand. Um, but, uh, I don't know, like Shannon, what'd you think of like, was the pitch dumb or do you feel like this is the kind of thing that could actually sell today? I mean, it's definitely more indicative of like how we have to consider, um, consumerism these days, considering like, you know, we are in an economic, economic downturn. I was not, um, aware that that was her place to those <laughs> kind of decisions. Um, but it, it worked. They loved it. Um, again, still real unclear on what, what her role is uh, outside of the exec. But it was like the only time um, during the film where I felt like it addressed kind of the the potential of advertising, right? Like it, advertising is, can be really fun. It can be very flashy um, and entertaining, most certainly. But at the end of the day, you are speaking to a person and as advertisers, it's our jobs to connect to those people by way of whichever product we're trying to sell. So you have to speak to what their needs are and convince them that like this product is going to be able to address those needs. And if that means bringing it down 50 cents a can um, temporarily, then like that's, you know, what that is what the potential of advertising can do. You can actually speak human to human um, on that level. So I, I, in that respect, I loved it um, just because I think it's, you know, obviously advertising is one of those things it's like, well, we're always saying, you know, it's just ads, it's just advertising. You can't take it too seriously, but it could have, but it could have a serious impact and it seriously impacts like how we navigate the world. So um, in that respect, it was like, okay, am I being a little bit Pollyanna in the idea of like, this is kind of like a really beautiful moment where it can kind of speak to this industry's potential maybe, but like, you know, going from a room, sh like, <laughs> drowning in smoke <laughs> to this 
was like a pretty cool moment, I think. Um, again, comically drab. She's like this light and this like, because the Schooner clients are all like frowny faced, bespectacled men. Like, one of those like, there's no way you're pleasing this crowd. And here she's here she is. It's like you know, lower your goddamn prices. And they're like, we love it. Why did we think of that? Um, yeah, I, I thought it was like a, a nice light. And moment. then she's rewarded by being called a little girl. <laughs> oh yeah, the highest, yeah, the highest praise. <laughs> Where are you hiding this? Where are you hiding this little girl? I'm like, oh, and, and no one. I'm like, oh, we're, we're not going to dress normal. Cool. That's fine. But yeah, they 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 love the little girl uh, who pitched this this concept. Um, and then it sets up, I think the one scene that I actually felt kind of resonated with me at least, but is like, she has to go to LA two hours notice to film a spot because, Hey, you got the green light. So you got to go shoot it. That's pretty accurate. I mean, not so much that you would have a production ready to go that fast, but this shit, you know, it's like over. Yeah. It, I've had those moments. Um, and like, there's the scene where she's having to leave on Halloween, right? Mm-hmm. Like kids dressed up. Everybody's like ready to do stuff and she's got to go catch a plane. And that like hurt my soul because I have been in that literal exact situation of like, hey, we need you to come out to L.A. tomorrow. And I'm like, tomorrow's my kid's birthday. Tomorrow's Halloween. Like and just like welcome to shitty industry. Um, and then they have a, a pretty good dialogue where it's a it's a gender reversal, but it's not played for laughs where he's saying even when you're here, you're not here about mm-hmm. about. Carolyn's like kind of life as someone who works in advertising, she's working too late of hours. I mean, this is, this is a complaint that uh, an unfortunate number of spouses have had to say about people who work in advertising. Um, And I love that it's not played for laughs, that it's not like, Oh, this time it's the husband saying it. It's sincere. He's really concerned that she's not getting to see her family. She's not getting to be there. And she's like, do you not want me to succeed? Do you not want me to be able to do all this? There, there's no good guy. There's no bad guy. It is a, painfully relatable uh disagreement and i think when i see things like that in hollywood i'm always like damn because it's so much easier to write a dialogue where one person is right and the other person is wrong because then you get to like slam dunk that person at the end of it and in this one she just like gets gets in the car and goes to the airport and you're just like that sucks um but then that the shoot is weird um (laughs) it uh ash you've probably been on more shoots than any of us like I don't know. It's like, it's both accurate and inaccurate in a lot of ways. I love that the CEO is helpless. He's on his 25th take <laughs> trying to say this one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> I, the, the thing that was surprising to me was she said it was an $11 million production. Spend. Yeah. Which, which with inflation is $34 million. <laughs> and then you get to the shoot and it's just like him on a gray background. <laughs> It's like, where's Which all this like, money go? <laughs> it's the media. It's a, it's, it's like, all media. They're, yeah. They're but yeah, the, the, shoot, the shoot was, was funny because I have dealt with like, you know, CEOs and brand leaders who want to be the stars of the show and they're very hard to direct <laughs> and it takes, it's a lot of takes to get what you want and to get any sort of personality on the read. Um, so I felt that, but then it was funny because the client, his thing, he was like, we need the emotional piece of this. And I was like, that's such a classic client thing to say, <laughs> like, where's the emotions? Like you're selling tuna. So chill out for a second on the emotion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but I, okay, but what I thought was probably one of the least accurate things of this movie was that what he's saying is exactly what she pitched. The script has not changed. <laughs> had no rewrites at all. Yeah. So all of her late nights and just stressful time work. What is she working on? The script is exactly the same. <laughs> it She's makes no sense. She's out of home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and like, I love that, like, uh, the second she lands back home, the ad is on the air. I mean, that's really the only, like, kind of completely bullshit. But that Hollywood does this every day. If you're making an ad campaign, that campaign is running before you are out of your shower the next morning. Like, it is... <laughs> Like nothing moves faster than Hollywood uh, produced ad campaigns. Um, but the uh, but yeah, that's the, the ad airs. It's fine. Like it's <laughs> to your point, it's literally what she presented. He does this really like at the end, he says something about like uh, go America. He says something about and he like holds up this crappy little American flag, just like and like kind of waves it. Um <laughs> It's and you're just like, all right, like I kept waiting for a punchline of either he's really bad or he's surprisingly good. There's nothing. It's just the ad just runs and the movie functionally ends. Like, mm -hmm. are we sidestepping the entire slapstick dumb? Like he thinks that she's cheating on him with Martin Mull when Martin Mull's actually uh, basically assaulting her, like breaks yes. into her hotel room. Uh, which is played for laughs. Uh, it's real. It's real freaky. She comes out of the bathtub to find Martin Mole in her room, answering her phone in a in bathrobe. A and it's yeah. Yeah. And instead of being like calmly, by the way, so calm. Yeah. She's like, instead yeah, who's on like, my phone? No, ma'am. <laughs> not the first question. <laughs> <laughs> she, well, you can tell she's a mother. She's got patience. Yeah. <laughs> For a second, I thought, like, maybe they are sleeping together because, like, she just kind of has this, like, oh, who was that? Who was that on the phone? Oh, it, you know. And then also, like, why are you in my room? Like, barely even asks. And it's just, like, in a robe in my room. And, like, imagine how freaky. I mean, I don't have to ask. Like, coming out of the bathtub and finding a coworker in your goddamn room. Um, and she just, like, just, like, hey, you should probably leave. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like for you to get out. Um I mean, I guess in a lot of ways it's it's pretty apt because like how many women have found themselves in really deeply uncomfortable situations and had to like navigate that calmly, like almost eerily calmly so that they can just survive it. Um, you know, not to bring the mood down too much, but like, you know, she's in this room with this powerful man, like even though the solution in the 80s is to just sock him in the face, she probably doesn't feel uh, too empowered to do that in that moment. And She's that way throughout the entirety of the film, right? Like she's dealing with these, just these awful things. And she has to basically succumb to this man child um, while still trying to like assert a boundary, even uh, though like in, in our day it would have been like, oh, immediately HR, like um, immediately call a cop. Cops. Yeah. <laughs> get, get the police in here asapsually. But uh, it, it's definitely uh, indicative of that power dynamic. And it's like, even though she's apparently a very important person on day two, she was picked up in a limo and carting around in a jet that still doesn't like, you know, provide safety for her. Right. Even down to like 
him propose like literally proposing like <laughs> leave your husband come marry me mind you i'll love you it would just be good for business which is like a wild <laughs> proposition <laughs> that she's somehow so powerful and so meaningful to this business that like she should blow up her life and marry him just so that they can add um another name to the the business name is just wild (laughs) um and she just has to like face all that with grace and style it's disgusting but accurate because it's probably how a lot of us would probably have to navigate that today unfortunately yeah your description of him as a man child i feel like is the most accurate of that whole scene because she is so calm and she's the way she's talking to him is is like he's a child and that's where her experience as a mother has helped her in this career and in this horrible sexual harassment situation but we know it eventually ends with her punching him in the face which we all (laughs) wanted to see (laughs) which is which is the the key ending for Uh type of film like this just in the end, everyone gets a punch to the face that deserves it. <laughs> I wish I could say that, like, I, I really did feel that some of these scenes, that the way she's handling the harassment is because she's trying to act cool. But I really think that it's because a, a man wrote it and a man directed it. And they just kind of, for them, it's just not a big deal. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's like, I think, again, if it were made now, yeah. Yeah. She'd be like, you you would see I'm putting on this face I'm pretending but I'm like clenching my fit I'm like really worried there's none of that it's all treated for jokes it's all just like ah she punches him you know it's like um and then uh, the plot resolves and yeah it's like Martin Mull uh, asks her to marry him as you mentioned uh, it makes no sense at all like what he's getting out of this uh but he's just wants her to kind of basically like take over the agency which is wild um <laughs> Uh, at the same time, just for reasons, um, Jack gets offered his job back because Jeffrey Tambor has screwed the pooch at the uh, the factory. Uh, he negotiates to get all of his friends rehired. In this kind of whirlwind dialogue, uh, with everyone being in the same room, including the TV repair woman, which I love that it's a woman at least. Like that's one nice little progressive thing. Um, the uh, and then the 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 pest control guy, like the exterminator, they're all like going back and forth and they end up negotiating that she's going to work like three days and be home two days or vice versa. But like with, with this guy who just like has been chronically harassing her and she's just got done saying she doesn't like it there. um, (laughs) Jack hated his job. He's going right back to it. That's the ending. It's left kind of like, wait, is anyone taking care of these kids, like these kids who have been supposedly the whole point of the movie, although the kids are a real afterthought. Again, this is one of those guy wrote the movie, like every reference to babies, every reference to childcare is just a guy being like, and then I don't know, do you feed them? Like maybe you change the diaper like once a week. Is that a, it's like emptying a litter box, right? Um, you know, there's just, there's so many scenes where you're just like, right. Okay. And then, um, and then it's over. I have no idea what their work situation is. They don't seem to really care at the end. Um, all that matters is that their relationship has been ironed out and then the movie and then credits roll. <laughs> You're like, okay, that was Mr. Mom. Yeah. And on, on that note, that was Mr. Mom. Uh, we try to give, uh, each movie at least consideration for awards. Um, 
Anyone have any thoughts? So uh, last time we gave an award for accuracy of advertising, of portraying advertising. Does this one merit a bronze, silver, gold shortlist or nothing for its accuracy in portraying advertising? So I shot myself in the foot last week or the last episode, and I gave that a bronze um, because of the, and now I feel like I've set an impossible bar. I feel like I gave it a high bronze because of the lack of an actual brief scene. It was literally just, yes. here's a car, it goes zoom, 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 um, and we want people to have sex with it. Give me an ad. And I was like, bronze! And so now... Um, <laughs> based on that metric, I feel like I would, I would either have to give last week's a retroactive, like reluctant silver and this episode's like a, like a very solid bronze or maybe it's just a bronze in general. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to say it's for, in terms of like really hitting on the potential of what advertising could be. I think it would probably be in like the low silver um, just through Carolyn's uh, stick to alone. I, I think that that's, there's an accuracy there that I thought was really interesting. Um, obviously this is the eighties. So are there, you know, smoke rooms <laughs> where everyone is just loudly, um, pitching each other and also thoroughly disrespecting each other i hope not but at the very least it, it does hit on somewhat what what advertising can be so yeah silver and then and my apologies <laughs> to uh no it was the other name for the one was tom dick and harriet yeah was yeah. all's fair love and advertising yeah like, yeah and but yeah so Silver's all around this week, I think. <laughs> I think I would give it a silver as well. And I mean, I have no experience with 80s advertising, clearly, because I wasn't alive then. But it did give very, like, 60s Mad Men vibes, the scenes in the office. And I don't know if that's what it was actually like in the 80s or not. But I also, I understand that if they were to show the more accurate representation of what concepting is like it would be boring because it's just you know mm -hmm. people teams going off on their own and talking amongst themselves and when there's when there's a struggle to find an idea it's usually not everyone yelling at each other it's everyone kind of quiet and frustrated and annoyed that's not entertaining so I understand why they made the changes they did and I felt like it was mostly accurate at least the the vibe of that sort of agency dynamic um, and then, you know, the sexual harassment stuff, unfortunately, is pretty accurate as well. So I think I'd give it a, a pretty firm silver for accuracy. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that, you know, as we talked about, John Hughes worked in advertising from 1970, which I believe is the year Mad Men takes place, right? Or at least it's right around mm -hmm. 70. Um, so he may have been portraying advertising as it existed when he worked in it 10 right. years before. Um you know, that said, it's okay. I, like my bar is low for how is how is advertising portrayed. If they go from concepting to pitch to production, I'm fine. I'm easy to please. That's that's better than ninety percent of Hollywood depictions of advertising. Um, so you know, I'll give it. I'll give it a. a I'll give it a silver since that seems to be where we're where we're headed. Um, 
I was I was coming in with bronze just because I to me it meets like the the bare minimum, but I do think we need to set the bar where most movies we watch are not going to to be that that accurate. Most um, won't even be on the short list. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the other one is is this movie is intended to speak to gender roles, right? Like to that is the whole point of the movie. Uh, how do we feel it does on a, on a scale of bronze to gold? Does this movie do a good job of actually making people think about gender disparity in, in, uh, you know, these issues, what's freaky to me is that a lot of the issues they're pointing out are still being debated now, often outside of America. There's quite a few cultures where you'll see can lion winning work that is basically like, sometimes maybe the guy should clean the house. And it's just like Grand Prix, you know, because in that country, the the norms haven't shifted. Even whereas in America now, if you see a dad cleaning, you see a dad doing chores, it is not portrayed as anything special. He is not portrayed as a superhero. He's just doing his chores, doing whatever. And if anything, you're like a straight dad, like like you know, you feel like oh, we could have gotten three or four more aspects of inclusion into this into this spot. Um, so all that said. Ash, how do you feel about does it deserve an award for its uh, prodding conversations about gender roles? I think it does. I mean, everything about it was very cliche. Everything he deals with as a stay-at-home mom is just like, you know, if anyone listed out what a mom does at home, like it hits on every single one of those, the cooking, the cleaning, the grocery shopping, just all of it. Um But I feel like for, at least from what I've seen of 80s movies, it did feel like it was a little bit um, ahead of its time a bit (laughs) with with suggesting at least that the gender roles should be flipped. Had the ending been a little different, I think it would deserve a higher award. But since they do kind of just fall back into their typical roles, it felt like they kind of just undid a lot of the the commentary from the rest of the movie. So I feel like I would, if I were to give it an award, I would say a bronze. It would have been higher had they stuck to their guns of mixing up traditional gender roles at the end. I don't know. Like one <laughs> thing that it does get right, right. Is that mediocre white men are continuously awarded for mediocre things. Like he's taking his kids like shopping and, just him picking up cereals got Joan like hot under the collar. Like he, <laughs> the sort of end where he has like learned or come to the realization. He's like, Oh, I should be like mildly attentive to what's going on around me. Going from like this five-year-old cooking on ugh, chili on this hot stove and him being like, Oh dope. Where's your sister to like, Oh, maybe like I should wash my shirt. Or, like, maybe I, like, should have a general account of where my children in, where my children are. Pretty accurate for today's standards, I think. Like, still, to this day, like, men get to get away with saying, like, oh, I'm babysitting my children. As if, like, parenting is just not a natural part of the, their life and job. So, like, in, in that regard, like, that's accurate. I... Maybe I have to like sit with what, how this was positioned at the time a little bit more. 
Um, because yeah, it definitely was like during the eighties, um, a big deal. I mean, it was a big deal one to have the, you know, the man sort of taking on these in home things and then to follow this woman through like the harder aspects of her life that I think it's, I would probably give it more of a high bronze in terms of the structure of the film itself, as opposed to like the actual plot and what's actually happening. If that makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's harder to say. Like, yeah. It, I, I get how this was a big deal at the time. Um, but like, it also doesn't help that Jack is not likable ever. Like throughout this film, he is, he is like low key slash high key, mm-hmm. like eighties, gentle toxicity, like <laughs> laying into his wife because like, what do you mean you're going to get a job before me? Like from jump, like <laughs> there's just like no redeeming qual- qualities about this man. Well, in the movie, the movie kicks off with him calling her doll face. That's in like the first minute of the movie. Yeah. I was like, oh, here we go. Doll face. <laughs> he's lying. He's lying constantly. You'd almost think he's the one working in advertising because he uh, <laughs> like like he tells her he slept great, then tells his coworkers he didn't sleep at all. And you're like, well, he's lying to one of them. And I don't even know which one is supposed to be the joke. Uh, then he's lying to these guys about seeing Rocky. Like, I'm just like. Is, are they trying to set up that this guy is untrustworthy? Uh, and then through the whole, Michael Keaton just kind of excelled at playing these parts where they're not tremendously likable. And I don't know if they're necessarily intended to be. I think you're supposed to like be like, oh, that guy's funny and charming in a certain way. But yeah. Yeah. He was like the, the, the funny, charming jerk. Still a jerk. Like <laughs> so. And he gets away with it for, by the virtue of being Michael Keaton. And he can, in my eyes, do very little wrong. Um, so it's like, yeah, like there, there is, um, a little bit of a paradox there, um, for me at least, but I I guess for its time, it it was the best you were going to get. So yeah, I guess like a, like a high bronze in terms of the gender roles, It, it was at least an attempt. An attempt was made, um, as they say. So high bronze. Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb here about why I would give it a silver. For one, I think it legacy alone, like in terms of it did it, to the, to the point of, we mentioned the critics who said at the time, we've seen this all before you have, but you've seen it as the plot of a one-off episode of a sitcom. Like, Oh, there's one episode of uh, I love Lucy where Desi has to stay home with the baby. You know what I mean? It was always like a, th- that's a funny little throwaway thing. And I think that's really what the, what the critics couldn't know at the time is that the phrase Mr. Mom would become decades enduring, terminology unfortunately this idea of and and it bothers me the ending bothers me for a lot of reasons for one it sucks for another it like he doesn't like yes he gets better as a human being he becomes a better parent in certain ways um but he doesn't in the movie appreciating the role and being like you know i i love this like I want to stay home with these kids um i'm gonna design cars from my uh, 1983 computer like there's just, there's no real growth, you know, and everything's just kind of uh, hand wave. But there's one thing I really like about it, even by a modern standard, maybe especially by a modern standard, is that there's a really low hanging joke that they don't go for. And every other gender role type thing does this, where he learns how to do the, you know, he learns how to do laundry. He learns how to take care of the kids in the grocery shop and all and do the school stuff. He does not learn it by bringing masculine problem solving to mm-hmm. the equation. Like with one or two kind of throwaway exceptions, uh, but 
you know what I mean? Like he solves it by learning what women have had to do for many years, what women are having to do in this society he lives in. And they show him picking up those skills and learning to love soap operas, learning to like all this stuff instead of making fun of it and just being like, Oh, women be crazy. (laughs) Like it's like, he actually learns that, that, wow, these are difficult skills and they take a long time to learn and they take a willingness to learn and a humility to learn. And I love that he doesn't like, you don't see him being like, oh, I'm going to solve this blanket problem with power tools and with like my manly abilities, like like some home improvement, you know, tool time bullshit. Uh, I know it's like, it's kind of silly to say like they don't go as bad as they could have, but I kept waiting for that. I was sitting there just waiting for that shoe to fall and it never did. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, for being a movie written by a dude who literally had to spend two days watching his kids, <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Just like make make a movie about this crisis I lived through. <laughs> uh, well, that was Mr. Mom. Uh, thank you both for joining uh, this uh, club meeting. Uh, I knew I, it's a long episode. Thank you for everyone bearing with us because uh, we I knew we'd have a lot to talk about. Uh, but yeah, it was a fun watch, and I really I think we all agreed it's got way more advertising uh, than we expected. Um, it's you know, quality to be uh, determined by the viewer. Uh, so <laughs> thank you, Ash. Thank you, Shannon. Uh, Ashley, where can folks find you on the social media? Oh, you can find me at stuff about advertising on pretty much everything minus Facebook. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Shannon, anything you want to plug where to find you, what you're doing? Um, I mean, I guess you could find me on um, Twitter, even though people are calling it X. I don't know why, um, but <laughs> on Twitter, you can find me at Shannon L underscore Miller um, same on Instagram uh, and I, I guess I'm on threads as well but I don't use it but maybe you know watch that space <laughs> and I'm uh, I think I'm David Greiner all uh, one word on Instagram and threads and yeah I've taken a hiatus uh, from Twitter but uh, who knows maybe I'll be back uh, we are uh, ad cinema club on on most socials you can give us a look uh, and follow us there we'd really appreciate it Shannon, I nominate you to be president. Oh, for amazing. Next meeting. Uh, can I get a second now that we're being all democratic? Uh, I guess I will second that. I appreciate you asking, making this a true democracy. <laughs> Robert's rules of order have finally been followed on the Ad Council Club meeting. Shannon, uh, as as president of next uh, week's club meeting uh, or ne- next episode, what what are we watching? Um, well, first of all, there's going to be a lot of changes now. Um, now that I'm in in <laughs> my seat of power, as I it's a one person podcast. I've been patiently waiting for this moment, man, man, oh man, the, the, the sweep of changes. <laughs> This place is going to see. But before we um, <laughs> hit all of those, the next film will be Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter from 1957, starring Jane Mansfield and Tony Randall. Really exciting. Um, obviously, peak modern we're going for with this film list. Uh, but um, exciting nonetheless. I I mean, people need to understand that, that like we are going to be having to be whipping back and forth between like the our own modern era the 80s obsession with advertising and then the 50s 60s like back when advertising was actually cool we're basically going to be flitting between these three and uh, yeah i'm excited to to start start the golden age 
Ad Cinema Club is a production of Boutwell Studios and Big Screen Lemon. If you're looking for the best possible team to help you launch a podcast, cast voice talent, handle audio production for your ads, you should head over to BoutwellStudios.com and mash that contact button. Tell them Ad Cinema Club sent you. This episode was hosted by Shannon Miller, Ashley Rutstein, and David Greiner and edited by Lane McGibney at Boutwell Studios. Our theme song was composed by Brad Lyons, also at Boutwell Studios. If you like what we're building here at Ad Cinema Club, we hope that you'll become an official club member by joining our Patreon. It's a mere $3 a month at patreon.com slash ad cinema club. Club members get to enjoy early access to each episode. You get to vote on movies that maybe we should watch in the future and you get exclusive access to a few bonus episodes each season. So please check out that Patreon. We would appreciate it. Also, please take a moment to rate and review Ad Cinema Club on Apple Podcasts. We're a new show, so those early ratings are incredibly important for helping us reach new listeners. Uh, you can also reach us at adcinemaclub at gmail.com. You can visit us at adcinema.club. And yeah, thanks for listening. This club meeting is adjourned. <laughs>